overwhelmed, exhausted at the end of your rope? Some of you in this room this morning and some of you that are joining us in the family room are at the end of your rope. And you know what Thoreau meant when he talked about living life in quiet desperation. And the words to that song echo in your heart and in your mind, I'm only human. And really, no matter what your faith background, no matter what you believe about the story of Christianity, about Jesus, about the Bible... You know what it's like to feel that. And maybe even you've said, God, what are you doing? Or if you're like me, you've maybe shouted it, and I'm glad that God's big enough to handle that. And if that's not you today, then you've been there, right? And, and you know there's this nagging feeling that you're going to be there again. Because that's the way life is. Some of you know the writer Tim Keller. Some people call him the modern day C.S. Lewis. In one of his recent books called Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, he writes, No matter what precautions we take, no matter how well we have put together a good life, and that's fulsome in this region, isn't it? I like to put together... A good life. No matter how hard we have worked to be healthy, wealthy, comfortable with friends and family, and successful with our career, something will inevitably ruin it. And isn't that the truth? Something always seems to ruin it. A few weeks ago, I was looking at different files on my computer, and I opened a file that I hadn't opened in seven and a half years. In fact, it was, it was a file within, the, within another file, that was, and I was looking for something else, and I clicked on it, and I read this journal entry that I had done seven and a half years ago. I was cracking up, so I went and I read it to Holly, and we were just laughing because it talked about our first six months in Austin, Texas. Some of you know my story, how I was laid off in Colorado. Holly and I are at the end of our financial and emotional rope, and God gives us some light at the end of the tunnel, so we head off into this new chapter in a new state and a new church, this new adventure that we're on, but things went downhill kind of fast. (laughs) And I was, I was reading through this. I don't have time to read you the whole thing, but, but I'll share some highlights with you. In the first few months, my job changed three times, and I found myself doing things that were good things, but things that I wasn't really passionate about. But you know how that goes. And you still have to remain joyful, and you still have to be successful at what you're doing, even when you don't feel the passion there. We thought we had had this little house, and, 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 and we put some money down on it, and, and then the owners, we, we had the inspector come in, and, and we were ready to rock, and the owners were covering some things up, being a little deceptive, and so we pulled out of the deal, and we lost some money on that. 
Two cars broke down. We only have two cars, so those, that's all our cars. And they broke down, and I'm finding myself on the side of the road, and thousands of dollars later, we're, we just decided, let's just sell one of these things. I'm going to ride my bike. Forget this action. And then we found ourselves trying to get into a home before school started, and so we're, we're kind of rushing, and there's not a lot available. And we ended up in this little house that was built in the 1930s in downtown Austin. They picked it up, and they shipped it out down by the river. So we were in a little house down by the river, not a van down by the river, but we were in a little house down by the river, and it was, it was so small I could sit on the couch and change the channel. That's how small it was. I didn't need a remote. It was filled with cockroaches and mold. The cockroaches were pretty scary, but the mold made us sick. You know, the, the cockroaches were pretty big, and, and, and when you're running around the kitchen trying to catch them, and you can't find them, and then you're really still, and then you feel this little tickling under your foot. It makes you scream like a nine-year-old girl. Yeah, it was pretty bad. But the mold made us sick, and so we were sick for, sick for about six months, and, and Holly and I got walking pneumonia. My daughter had pneumonia, too, and we took her to the hospital in the middle of the night, and the doctors didn't know what was going on until $8,000 later, and then they finally figured out what was going on, thank you very much. And so that was an interesting adventure. My son fell out of the tree two days after we moved in and broke his arm. My other son jumped off the couch the week later and busted his front teeth in, and I even lost my iPod. And I get, I fully get that those are all first world problems. I, I, I get that. And I get that, that, that in my journey, in my story, there is human error. And, and in that story in particular, as I look back, there, there was some wrong choices made that rippled out and affected my family. But I also believe, as I stand here today, that just as Jesus invited the disciples into the boat and said, let's cross over to the other side, but in the middle of that journey, a storm arose so fierce that it threatened their lives, and they cried out to Jesus and said, don't you care? I fully believe that God invited us in to that entire chapter in our lives. That God gave me more than I could handle. And you have stories like that too. And really the story of humanity is precisely a story of getting more than we can handle. One of the reasons I, I love the scriptures and one of the reasons they ring so true to me is because story after story, person after person gets more than they can handle. And this just seems to ring true with the way that life really is. And the, and the thing about it is, is it's not just that things happen, but when we read the scriptures, God is actually responsible for some of it. Abraham, go sacrifice your son, your son Isaac, through whom all the blessings will come, the promises of redemption, the Messiah for the redeeming of the whole world. Go sacrifice Isaac on the mountain. Abraham got more than he could handle. Moses got more than he could handle when he was sitting out in the desert tending sheep for 40 years wondering what God was up with his life. We know the story about Elijah 
He has this great victory, and then he runs away from the queen who wants to kill him, and he finds himself in a ditch, and he's depressed, and he's lonely, and he says, God, I just want to die. Job lost everything. Joseph found himself in a dungeon, betrayed, mistreated, abandoned. The Apostle Paul writes in the New Testament about lots of his difficulties in several different areas. And to the little church in Corinth, he says, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experienced in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure far beyond our ability to endure. Or in other words, we got way more than we could handle. So that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. Your story and my story is filled with more than we can handle. We're in a series right now at Lakeside Church called Myths We Love to Believe. And one of the biggest myths that I think we love to believe is that God won't give me more than I can handle. And you might say, well, wait a minute. Haven't I heard that somewhere in the Bible? I mean, isn't, isn't there some teaching about that? And I say, well, sort of. There is a passage in 1 Corinthians 10 that talks about God not allowing us to be tempted more than we can bear. And when we are tempted, he will provide a way of escape. And we know from the book of James that God does not tempt anyone. But that passage is more about temptation and growing up into maturity. Paul is warning the Corinthian church using the nation of Israel as an example. But it's not about all the other difficulties that we face in life. Unfortunately, this verse has sort of been taken and misconstrued and, and a belief has emerged around it that says, God would never give me such difficult circumstances in my life that I would not be able to handle them. Or maybe, even without that verse, that's just the type of God we want to believe in. The kind of God that's going to keep us healthy, wealthy, and wise, and he's going to kind of build a hedge around us. And Christianity is equated with some sort of comfortable life. And I believe that it's created a difficulty for us. A difficulty that says, if you're facing something, if you're frustrated, if you're exhausted, If you've suffered loss, if you are carrying the weight of the world on your shoulders, well then, it's up to you to handle it. And you should be able to handle it. And I think it's been devastating to our understanding of God, our understanding of Christianity, and our understanding of life itself. This perspective contributes to this sort of common-held belief that you just need to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. And, and, and if you're failing, then just try harder. Obey more commandments. Go to church more. Serve more. Do more. And when you're doing more, do it all better. I mean, how exhausting is that? This perspective sets God up as sort of this performance coach that says you must meet certain standards in order 
for me to accept you or in order for you to feel good about your life. And somehow it sets God up as the rewarder of the strong and successful and the punisher or at least withholding blessing from the weak and the hurting and the failing. And how sad is that? This perspective also contributes to this this Christian life of perpetual frustration where God is sort of like a vending machine and we exhaust ourselves as we angrily await for our payday that somehow always will translate into some sort of physical blessing of some sort. And how frustrating is that? I want to suggest to you that this perspective, this myth, is pervasive in American Christianity. And I also want to suggest to you that it's a lot more American than it is Christian. You see, our stories as 21st century American Christians, I believe, are really a part of a much longer and much larger story. A story that God's been writing from the very Beginning, a story where indeed he gives us more than we can handle. But sometimes it's hard in our stories to see the big story because our lives are sort of like those Russian Matryoshka dolls. You know those dolls within a doll, within a doll, within a doll. Because our stories are sort of like a story within a story within a story within a story. And it's hard to see through the layers to the big story and to back up and to get some perspective. Because we know that our stories as 21st century American Christians are really a part of a larger, longer story Really of, a, of American history, right? And that story comes from all sorts of different places on the globe, primarily from Western Europe. And that story is a story that comes from all sorts of different stories. And it can be traced back to the very beginnings of Western civilization. And that story comes from the ancient stories. But I believe if, if we back up far enough and we begin to look at the big story the story that we see in the scriptures, the narrative that God is writing, it will not only give us perspective on the story that we're living, but it will also give us tremendous hope in the midst of having more than we can handle. And I get, I get that a lot of us are wary of the big stories. I mean, this is what postmodernism is really about. It's scared of the large narratives. It wants to throw them all out and say, let's just have all the little stories. Because the big stories caused a couple world wars in the last century, didn't they? And there's all sorts of things that big stories have done, but it all depends. It all depends on who is writing the story. Who's behind the story? If you have your Bible this morning, I want to encourage you to open to the very beginning of the story that we have, and that's Genesis 1-1, all the way back to the beginning of the story. And what I'd like to do this morning is I just want to, in a brief time, I wish we could go deeper with this, it's going to be like skipping rocks across a, a lake, but I want to give you sort of three defining moments in this big story. You might call them lenses, and I think if we will look through these lenses... They'll help us gain some, pers- some perspective and give us hope for our story. And so the first defining moment in this story is creation. 
creation, and we find it at the very, very beginning, everything that we read in the scriptures and all of our lives must be understood in light of the Genesis creation story. And so if you have that passage ready, it begins right in the very first verse. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty and darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And the story continues and we find out that we're reading a Hebrew poem or a Hebrew song and it has a cadence, it has a rhythm. God speaks, he creates, it is good. God speaks, he creates, it is good. And then we find the spot down in verse 26 where we enter into the story. It says, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule. And it gives us all these things that represent the creation project, this thing that God is up to. And God places us in authority. He, pl- he places us in these positions of caring for and leading the way. And he says, my image is upon them. They will reflect me out into the entire creation. And so when the leaves clap their hands and the birds sing my praises, they'll be singing the praises as well. Verse 27, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He places us in beautiful community. Verse 28, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule again. Incredible significance there. The passage speaks of God's blessing in verse 29. And if you skip all the way down to verse 31, it says, God saw all that he had made and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. And so according to the scriptural worldview, because that's what we're talking about when we talk about big stories is we're talking about worldviews. It begins with emptiness, formlessness, and darkness. In the language of Hebrew poetry, these were all very meaningful words that would have described a very dangerous world. A dangerous world that needs the involvement of a good creator. And the writer shows us this good creator. The spirit of God is hovering over the waters. Water in ancient Near Eastern literature was symbolic of chaos and a lot of times evil. And it's a sense that it's all under control and it's being taken care of. And so God goes on creating because this is his story that he's writing, but he invites us remarkably into the story. And unlike the other creation epics of the day, the original readers would have seen the drastic difference that God invites humans to be partners with him in the story. He intentionally invites us to work with him in creating this good world. Our story is about a loving creator who made us to be good humans who are partners in creating a good world. And here's, here's something really important to remember. And I think we often forget this or don't believe it. The story is still being written. 
It's still continuing on. And you might say, wait a minute, Sean, haven't I heard that God finished his work? I mean, doesn't it say that he rested on the seventh day because his work was done? And I say, yeah, right at the beginning of chapter two in Genesis, it says exactly that. He rested from his work. But his partnership with us, that was just beginning. You see, creation speaks of our significance and the fact that God gives us a mission in life. And that project isn't finished. I, I sometimes get the idea that, that, that we think that there ought to be s'mores and, and beach chairs in the Garden of Eden, you know? And I like s'mores and beach chairs, and that's really cool. But, but the project has to go forward. And you might say to yourself, well, where is this project going? I mean, didn't sin? I mean, I've heard that story about the apple and all of that. I mean, didn't sin mess the story up? And yeah, you look out the window today and there's still darkness and chaos and all sorts of things going on. But God doesn't throw away the creation project. He redeems it. And he says to you and to me, we're still partners with him in creating a world of love and a world of goodness. But it's helpful for me to know where the story begins because it reminds me of my significance and my mission in life. Where is the project going? Where is it headed? Well, if you were to take your Bible and you were to flip all the way to the other side, to the very end, last couple chapters of the book of Revelation, we kind of start to see where it's headed. And that's where we find the second defining moment of the story. And that's completion. Or we might say conclusion. Or we might say consummation. But this is it. And, and, and John is having this vision and, 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 and God gives them the end of the story. Isn't it good to know that even though we don't know a lot of in-between stuff, we know where the story's headed? In Revelation 21, it says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I find that very interesting. There was a sea, there was chaos in the beginning, the Spirit of God is hovering over it, and now the sea is no more. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from heaven coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So there's a marriage in the beginning and there's a marriage at the end. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, See, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them. They will be his peoples and God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more. For the first things have passed away. And the one who was seated on the throne said, See, I am making all things new. And and also he said, Write this, for these words are trustworthy and true. Then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give water as a gift. From the spring of the water of life. To those who conquer, they will inherit these things, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the polluted, the murderers, the fornicators, the sorcerers, the idolaters, and all the liars, their place will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. And then, if we were to turn to the very last chapter of the Bible, 
John writes, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Through the middle of the street of the city, on either side of the river is the tree of life. So there's a tree of life in the garden, and now there's a tree of life in the city. He talks about that tree producing its fruit in its season. And then I love this line. It says, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. Creation speaks of our significance. Completion tells us that God is faithful and able to bring the story to its rightful conclusion. And there will be mercy. And there will be justice. And God would not be God unless there were both mercy and justice. And in the end, he carries it to the completion where he sets everything right. And this is extremely helpful for me because it tells me that God, when God gives me more than I can handle, it's actually leading somewhere. It tells me that God gives me more than I can handle for a purpose, for a good purpose. Sometimes a purpose that I cannot see in the moment. I might not be able to see it till the next chapter of my life, just like Joseph. At some point, He was finally able to see and he told his brothers what you meant for evil, God meant for good, for the saving of many lives. But I also may have to wait till the very end of the story. But it gives me hope to know where the story is headed. And so creation speaks of God's goodness and our significance, the sense of mission that God's given us. Completion speaks of God's faithfulness and it gives us hope. And the third defining moment or the third lens that I think it's helpful to look through is the lens of the cross. And if you can't see the beginning and if you can't see the end, then just go to the cross and stay there. This morning in a little bit, we're going to have the opportunity to take communion together. And communion is all about the cross and the cross is all about love. A painful sacrificial, transforming love where Jesus cried out to his father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus knows what it's like to get more than you can handle. To have to cry out to our father and say, I don't know what's going on, but I know you. And you're going to help me through this. The cross reminds us of the life that Christians are called to. This is a life where Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. It's a cruciform life, and the cruciform life is filled with difficulty, with pain. But there's also hope because our pain is redemptive, because Jesus is alive. Indeed, there is also a resurrection. And we need this. The Apostle Paul needed this. At one point in his life, he was at the end of his rope and he had prayed and prayed and prayed and he was at the bottom and it's at that time that Jesus spoke to him. And he said, my grace is sufficient for you. 
For my power is made perfect in weakness. Paul knew his pain had a purpose. And with that kind of confidence, he told the Corinthian church, he spoke into a culture where success was everything and strength was everything. And he said, therefore, I will boast all the more greatly about my weaknesses. What a strange thing to do. So that Christ's power may rest on me. This is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions. This is crazy talk, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul lived a life of more than he can handle. And this is the counterintuitive, upside down, antithetical way of Jesus. And he says, Through the cross, come to me. All who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. And I will invite you back into a story that I'm still writing that has an amazing beginning and it has an amazing end. Where every tear and every difficulty will be wiped from your eyes and you will experience fullness of joy. The cross speaks of God's love and it shows us that we still matter. We still matter, even in the midst of our difficulty. Creation, completion, and cross. As I was walking and thinking and praying and meditating on these thoughts this week, a couple interesting things happened in my own heart, my own mind. One of the things is I found myself being extremely thankful. I wasn't prepared for that. It just happened. Even as I look back on chapters of my life that I had no idea when I was in the midst of them what was going on, and I was frustrated, and I was angry, and I look back on that just going, wow, wow, look at what you were doing. I had no idea. I also found myself being convicted. Because I, I, I don't do this outwardly, I, I, I don't do this publicly, but, but I, inwardly, I can be a big complainer. And I can just be like, God, what is up with you? What is up with this? What is up with that person? What is going on here? I mean, I can just be like, why, why, why? What's going on? And I know God's big enough to handle that, but my heart isn't necessarily helped by that. And I found myself doing this thing that, that we talk about sometimes. I found myself repenting because I knew that if I don't start to turn a little bit, that the trajectory of my life is going to go in a direction that I don't want it to go in. And so as I walked and I thought and I prayed, I thought about my life. And I just said, God, get, get, me, get me thinking better about these things. Give me some perspective. Help me to back up and remember once again this huge story that you're writing and to remember that the author of the story is good. I want to encourage you to think about those things this week as you have time, as you go about your day, as you drive to work, as the kids are napping, when you find a slice and a moment to think about the big story and your story in the big story. Would you pray with me this morning?
Father, you are a generous God. Thanks for calling us into partnership with you and the value and the significance and the freedom that comes along with that because we can choose to not partner with you. We can choose to write our own story. But you're always ready. You're always willing to receive us back through Jesus into what you're doing in this world. And so we're grateful and we're thankful for that. We're thankful for your sacrifice. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.